Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever seen a woman falling in love? She can't stop thinking about her true love. She wants to be near him every chance she gets. She delights in spending time with him, walking and talking with him, getting to know him better, opening her heart to him and being known. And these are beautiful things. But what if they're applied to the wrong person? What if a married woman can't stop thinking about a man who is not her husband? What if she wants to be near him every chance she gets? What if she delights in spending time with him, walking and talking with him, getting to know him better, opening her heart to him and being known? Well, those are ugly things. They are ugly because that is not love. That's adultery. God reminds us in the first commandment that he is like a bridegroom and that we, the church, are like a bride. He reminds us that true marital love is the love between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. He reminds us that our heart belongs to him and to him alone. Now, we read a section of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in the previous chapter, chapter 5, Moses gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel for the second time. And in morning worship, that's where I usually read the Ten Commandments from, from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, the first time that Moses gave, or the first time that the, the, um, the commandments were given to the people of Israel was at the beginning of their journeys in the desert at Mount Sinai. And now 40 years later, after all their wanderings, they're about to enter the promised land and Moses gives them the Ten Commandments again. And he reminds the people of God of their wedding covenant. Because that's what it is. It is a covenant of love. God came to this insignificant bunch of recently freed slaves. He gathered them in his presence. And he said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am God, your deliverer. I am God, your savior. I am God, your redeemer. And so God is the mighty prince who has saved the maiden in distress. And there at Mount Sinai, the mighty prince crowns the rescued maiden with his love and makes her a royal bride. Now, the prophet Ezekiel describes it, or actually the Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, describes it in this way. And if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, that's if you have a pew Bible, that's page 702. We're going to be looking at quite a few verses here in the next few minutes. Ezekiel 16. And this is how the Lord describes it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, 
but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is a description of the history of Israel. Through all of its very, very weak and insignificant beginnings as a small nomadic group to a slave people there in Egypt. And then in verse 8, there's the description of the covenant that God established, the covenant of love that he established with his people at Mount Sinai. So he's the royal bridegroom, and he makes his people the royal bride. And because a loved woman is a beautiful woman, God's divine love made his bride divinely beautiful. We'll keep reading through to verse 14 now, Ezekiel 16, 9 to 14. And again, this is describing Israel. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And so when in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 40 years after Sinai, Moses gives the law to the people again. They're just about to enter the promised land. They're just at that point where God is going to begin that beautifying transformation of a nomadic group of freed slaves into a kingdom famed for its reflection of the glory of God among the nations. So that's what we need to understand about Deuteronomy 5. It's a renewing of that covenant of love made back there at Sinai. And then right after the renewal, God reminds his people of what that means. And we read those verses in Deuteronomy 6. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy 6, because that's known as the, the Shema. You see, that's the first word of verse 4 in, in Hebrew. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus refers to this text, and he uses it to summarize the first table of the law. The words of the great Shema are another way of saying I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. 
I belong to my beloved, and my beloved belongs to me. Because that's what God's law means to his people. It is a celebration of the freedom to love. You were slaves in Egypt, but now you're free. You're free to love me, free to dedicate every thought, every word, every act to be an expression of and reaction to the pure, unalloyed, undivided love which binds us together in covenant. Well, that's what God did, and we know how things turned out. The Old Testament is replete with accounts of how the people of Israel whored after other gods. They abandoned their true love, and over and over again they were smitten with false gods. And they threw themselves into the arms of these false gods. And they said, love us, protect us, provide for us. And it was painfully ugly. And if you're over 18, when you get back home, keep reading the rest of Ezekiel chapter 16 and see how God describes that shameful ugliness of Israel's spiritual adultery. And we read those accounts in the Old Testament. And we shake our heads. And we ask ourselves, how could God's people do that? How could they turn their backs on the true God and embrace the fake gods, which were really just personifications of the forces of nature? How could they abandon the worship of the creator to worship created things? Now, Paul explains that this is what happens when people uh, suppress the true knowledge of God. If you look in Romans chapter 1, 21 to 23. He speaks about people who, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what happens when you don't know God rightly. You end up worshiping the things he made instead of the creator himself. And what are the consequences? Well, refusing to know and to love the triune God alone, sinners summon from the depth of hell every kind of unspeakable demon. You see that in chapter 1 of Romans towards the end there. Their hearts and lives are filled with darkness and with the fruits of darkness, impurity, immorality, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hate, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, disobedience, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. That's what he describes right there in chapter 1 of Romans. Now, it's bad enough when the ungodly do this, but to see God's covenant people Plunge into this horror of sin is heartbreaking. In Ezekiel chapter 8, we read of how bad things got. If you just go a few pages back to to chapter 8 here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel in this chapter describes the, the temple of God. Look there in verse 10. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel, the graffiti of hell, 
is on the walls of the holy temple of God. And there, if you look at the rest of the chapter, chapter 8 of Ezekiel, there in the rest of the chapter you see the, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the church, worshiping idols. You see the women of God's people worshiping Tammuz, the sun god. And then you see the men of God's people with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces to the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. That's how bad things got. That's how twisted things got. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, these things were written for our instruction, brothers and sisters. The Old Testament record of the repeated idolatry of God's people teaches us something. We see that it, it in, in, inevitably led to pain and suffering and darkness, destruction and death, and it's not hard to figure out why, because God is love and God is life. And when we turn our backs on him, we reject both love and life, and we embrace the darkness of hate and death. And in the first commandment, our mighty Savior Prince takes his bride by the shoulders and lifts her chin so that she looks into his eyes. And he says to her, I am your true love. You are mine and I am yours. I will not share you. I will not share your love with anything or anyone else. And the painful record of Israel's repeated spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness is a warning to us. If the Old Testament temple could become so polluted with idolatry that the graffiti of hell was scribbled on its inner walls, that can happen in the heart as well. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. What things are written on the walls of our heart? What's happening in that temple which is our heart? And so, it's a warning to us. If my heart is not for God alone, then I cannot expect anything good. My very salvation, my very life depends on him. And to rebel against him, to turn my back on him, is to put my very soul in eternal peril. Now, if we look at the catechism, the catechism gives a bunch of warnings there in the beginning of the answer. And we look at those warnings we look at those words and we think, well, it's a good thing that we're not in danger of doing those things, right? I mean, look at the list here. Idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayers to saints or to other creatures. That's hardly a problem for us, is it? I've personally never visited someone in Canada who has an idol on the front table to which they burn incense every day. And as for witchcraft and superstition, aren't we an enlightened modern scientific people, these things are hardly temptations for us, are they? And as for prayer to saints, after 500 years of Reformed catechizing, this old Romanist practice is really not a thing for us. But let's stop and reflect. Have you ever really, really wanted something? And have you ever said as you waited in expectation at a moment of suspense, oh, please, 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 please let this happen. Who were you talking to? Were you praying to your sovereign Lord and God? Or 
Was it just really a throwaway prayer to whatever forces of the universe were at play at that moment? Have you ever checked the horoscope and noted that some of the predictions seemed to fit? Have you ever been at a fair and just for the fun of it, gone into that tent and had your palm read or, or just tried a tarot reader just to see what it's like? For a Christian to even get near this type of thing is like a woman throwing herself into the arms of a man who is not her husband. It is a shameful rejection of God's love and God's providence. And what about the word idolatry? Now, if you flip the page in the Catechism to the next page, you see that in question answer 95, there's a definition of idolatry. It explains what it means. It means to have anything or anyone in whom we place our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God. It doesn't have to be a statue. As God declares himself to be our one true love in the first commandment, this is a good moment to search our hearts. Is my heart his? All of it. Or do I keep some parts of it for my so-called lovers? The Apostle John admonishes us, little children, keep yourself from idols. Count of God, where is your heart? With whom or with what does God need to compete for your attention? Where is your heart seeking comfort? What is your heart trusting in? Do not be deceived. Adultery brings massive destruction into a marriage, and spiritual adultery brings massive destruction into our covenant life with God. What created thing or created force of nature are you flirting with or putting your trust in? Do we worship Lady Luck? When we hope against hope that one more try at the casino or one more speculative purchase of crypto or stocks might provide us with the riches that we think we need. Do we pour over our stock and our RSP holdings every morning, even before prayer and scripture reading? Is that the first thing on our minds when we wake up and the last thing on our minds when we go to sleep? The Lord tells us you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and mammon. Do we say to alcohol or drugs, you are my only comfort in life and death. You get me through my day. You help me deal with life. You help me deal with the pain. Do we say to the government, you take care of me from cradle to grave. You keep me safe. You are a rock and a refuge to which I flee. Do we say to science, you are my wisdom. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. In your light, we see light. Do we say to health, I cannot live without you. I will forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing which could endanger my relationship with you. Do we, do we say to freedom and personal autonomy, you are my highest good. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Brothers and sisters, we could go on because there are as many idols as there are created things. 
and how our hearts are so easily enchanted and seduced. God calls us back to reality. God calls us to give our heads a shake. God calls us to come to our senses. He came to the people of Israel, and he said, I've just freed you from slavery in Egypt. I love you. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm going to lead you home. Now love me and love me alone. Be satisfied in my love. And that was absolutely awesome. But it was about to get even more awesome. Because that was just a little picture of a far greater and more glorious reality. Because God rent the heavens and God came down and God was made man, and Jesus was born. He did battle with that ancient serpent, the dragon. He suffered. He died. He rose in victory. He struck the dragon a mortal blow, and he rescued his bride. The Old Testament says of God, there is none like him. Before him, every knee must bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And then in the New Testament, the Spirit takes those exact words, and applies them to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And since he is God of God, very God of very God, before him, before Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The God who makes a covenant of love with his people has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. He declares himself to be the bridegroom. He declares us to be his bride. And that means that when we hear the first commandment, it is the Lord Jesus himself who is speaking to us. It is the Lord Jesus who is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. I am your one true love. I love you with an eternal love. I know you from eternity. I want you to know me, to trust me, to submit to me, to expect all good from me alone, to love, fear, and honor me with all your heart. Child of God, this isn't just some rule in a list of rules. This is the bridegroom of the church claiming the love of the bride of Christ for himself. It is in Jesus that we find life. It is in Jesus that we find love. And it is in the holy embrace of Christ that we will find each other. Now we came to church today laden down with our idols. All of us. We've all got a collection and how we are committed to our idols, how they drive us apart, how we love to demonstrate our unwavering commitment to our idols, and we will forsake all creatures. We will break fellowship. We will destroy communion. We will reject brothers and sisters rather than do the least thing against the will of our idols. And when that happens, that's a pretty sure sign that we're up to our neck in idolatry. When the things we serve, the things we hold to be important, incite us to turn our backs on God, to disobey the call to worship, 
to neglect and break the communion of the saints, to refuse to worship with or fellowship with men, women, and children for whom Christ died. Brothers and sisters, that is not going to work. We will never find unity when we engage in a never-ending contest of my idol is better than yours. We will never enjoy true fellowship when created things are lifted up to be higher and more important than Jesus Christ himself as the basis and standard of love and fellowship. Now this morning, the Lord set before us the foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. This morning, Christ embraced all of us in his love. And he reminded us, I have set you free from the Egypt of sin. I have established a covenant of love with you, guaranteed by my own blood. My sweet love, my bride, you are free. You are free from all the frantic scrabbling and scraping which characterizes slavery to false gods. You are free. I have set you free, and if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so let go. Let go. Let go of anything and anyone else, because I love you, and my love is eternal, and my love never fails, and my love is unconditional, and my love is rock solid, and you can build your life on that foundation. Amen.